This is made possible by Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. Aristotle wrote that no one would care to have sight if he were destined never to see, but always to have his eyes shut. Climate change may be the largest political and social imperative of our time. It's the concern that has only grown, especially for Gen Z and millennials. Even the nihilism-prone South Park masterminds straighten their faces long enough to admit that, yeah, it's time to talk about Man Bear Pig. Longtime Wall Street Journal correspondent and author Julia Flynn Seiler captures this upheaval in her article, Shivering at the Top of the World, which appears in the summer issue of Alta Journal. In it, she recounts her two and a half week voyage on the three mast, 162 foot wooden sailing ship that led her into the Arctic darkness at the top of the world broken only by the enormous perfection of Aurora Borealis. Julia and 29 other artists were tasked with observing the effects of climate change in the northernmost crevice of a gasping earth. Please welcome Julia Flynn Seiler. Julia, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Kevin. How are you? Doing great. It's, it's so good to have you on here. Um, so what uh, can you kind of give me the circumstances that led up to your your trip? Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, am a, a, a author, a nonfiction writer, and I was looking around, hunting around for the subject for my next book. And I came across a neighbor. It's a woman named Louise Arner Boyd, who uh, lived about a mile from where I live in Northern California and was the 20th century's leading woman Arctic explorer. And all of her papers had been stored nearby. And I started digging through them and becoming obsessed, basically, with what she did in the you know, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. And as I was reading through her uh, descriptions of calving glaciers in Greenland and these huge storms she encountered and the search for the lost explorer, Roald Amundsen, I realized that, you know, I'd never been to the Arctic. I needed to get myself up there because it's pretty hard to write about something you've never experienced. And so then I just started Googling around and I started looking like, how, how can I get up to the Arctic? I mean, I'm, you know, I have limited resources in a sense. And so I started looking for residencies or fellowships or some other, other way to, to, to go versus just being a tourist. And so I applied, I found this place called thearcticcircle.org. And it's a organization, nonprofit organization that's been around for a while, and it brings artists and writers up 
to the Arctic Circle to spend a few weeks together on a wooden sailing ship. And the accommodations are pretty basic, nothing fancy. Uh, But what's really magical about uh, the promise of this experience is to be with a lot of other people who've never been to the Arctic Circle either and to experience uh, what it's like. Um, And we arrived in the late in the late summer actually no the autumn of 2022 a year ago pretty much um from right now and it had been the warmest summer in history up there and we were in a in a boat a three-masted barkentine sailing boat that you know even a few decades ago there was no way a boat like that could have been safely navigating those waters in the late autumn um, we left in mid-October. We didn't get back till the beginning of November. Uh, and that in part is due to global warming, that the we didn't need to be in an icebreaker. We could be in a normal ship. And it was just an unbelievable experience, Kevin. I mean, it was great to spend that time. It was very intense, but it was great. That's, that's what you capture so well. And it, 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 with any of your writing, you have this, I mean, you have, there's a beautiful flow to it, but there you're telling you pack so much into every single sentence and they're like 12 stories all kind of interlinked. Uh, and one of the things that, that are, you really capture is this entanglement of this beautiful situation. And it's, it's also, it's kind of haunted. I mean, you t- talk about your, the dream that you have and you talk about this, um, this, interesting transformation of Luis. Yeah. I mean, I, I got back from being on the boat for two and a half weeks. Um, and the, one of the highlights of, of our experience together was encountering a polar bear um, when we were there. And we saw this single male polar bear sauntering along uh, uh, near a lagoon and we were able to pile into Zodiac boats, and get closer to him and really observe as he moved. And one of, one of uh, my shipmates, this amazing artist from Southern California, described the, the movements of the bear as if he was doing yoga moves or something. <laughs> he was rolling around and it was as if he's doing, a, you know. Uh, uh, python and all kinds of different moves. <laughs> Anyways, um, and so I got back to Northern California and just started dreaming about that bear and about the image of the bear against this very um, deep blue glacial edge and just thinking about him because, of course, polar bears are the symbol of climate change to many people and the fate of the polar bears is very much entwined as the ice disappears and starts melting. Um, It becomes more difficult for them to easily move around and hunting for seals and for other, uh, other creatures they eat becomes a little more difficult. So I don't know, something lodged in my subconscious, Kevin, as I experienced seeing that polar bear. Um, And I, I don't think I was the only one on the ship that felt that way. It did feel haunted. And also, I have to say that it felt haunted because we were there at a very unusual time. Most tourists never experience what 
um, our expedition leader called the dark season, the on arrival of the dark season. And what that means is that the, the sun, when we left the town of Longyearbyen, uh, which is in this on the Svalbard Peninsula in mid-October, we were getting a few hours of daylight. And then as the days progressed, we were getting more and more of this eerie kind of nautical twilight where the sun really didn't even start showing itself until 11 or 12 in, in, in the middle of the day. And then it would disappear by two o'clock. And by towards the end of our journey, the sun never came up. We were, mm. we were in dark almost the whole time. So that add, added to this sense of hauntedness or kind of um, this very strange feeling that we all came away with uh, when we got off the boat. And when we arrived back in Long Yearbin, it was pitch black in the middle of the, the day. It's the strange thing ever. So so what is calving? Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, you are pronouncing that right. That's when a, a portion, a big portion of the glacier cracks off and falls into the ocean in some cases or in the fjord or whatever body of water it's closest to. Um, so it's it's glacial erosion. It's the breaking down of the glaciers. And uh, this has been happening for many, many years, as long as people have been recording it. Um, uh, that said, I think climate scientists believe that that there's more erosion and more of the breaking down of that. There's an acceleration of the breaking down of the glaciers going on now. Yeah. The way you describe it is again, very haunting. And because I, you have this image in your mind or this, that um, going to the Arctic, it would be very quiet, like peaceful, but it was, it was very loud, wasn't it? (laughs) It was super loud. Yes. I, I and other of <laughs> the writers and artists on board thought we would be having a kind of quiet experience up there because we're we're going into a protected wilderness and there were almost no other boats. The only boats we saw were occasional fishing fleets, but basically no tourist boats at all out there. And we thought, ah, this is our chance to really (laughs) experience profound quietness. Well, that was not the case (laughs) for a couple of different reasons. First of all, um, I would say COVID hit our ship almost immediately. And so there were people who were coughing and people got sick. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. Right from the start. Right from the start. Some people got sick. Some people didn't get sick. I didn't get sick, which was great. Uh, But the people next to me were coughing pretty much 24-7 for a few days. It was, they were in a lot of, it was very uncomfortable for them. Um, Secondly, we had a huge windstorm. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, there are pretty serious swells in those fjords and in that ocean, the Arctic Ocean, where the portion that we were in. And we had a great captain. He was a, he was a, uh, where was he from the Netherlands, I think. And, you know, he made some great choices about tucking the boat into the nose of a fjord and tucking it behind a mountain to avoid must to be shielded essentially from much of the wind that was coming through. Um, but still the boat was rocking back and forth and back and forth. And, uh, yeah, a number of my shipmates got pretty, pretty seasick. And uh, and the sound of the boat itself, it almost sounds like a wounded animal as it's being rocked by the ocean. I mean, it's just crazy. And there's stays and the sounds of the, you know, 
I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's not like anything I had experienced before. I'm not normally on a seagoing vessel like that. So uh, for the purpose you know of, about sailing, right? I mean, you grew up sailing. I do. Yeah. I grew up sailing smaller boats than this one. This was about a 120, 130 foot boat. And I grew up sailing on the San Francisco Bay and, and we both basically had little tiny 30 foot boats. So, so this was a little creaky. This one was outfitted with a huge diesel engine, which was made a lot safer in those kind of waters, um, which is great. And it also had, as I mentioned, three masts. So there are lots of different ways to power this, this big old heaving boat. Yeah, it was great. It was an interesting experience. And the final part about quiet and lack of, I would mention, was that you know, almost by definition, most writers tend to be kind of introvert extroverts, tending towards the introvert yeah. side. And that we spend a lot of time by ourselves and, and we live in our imaginations. Uh, and there were a few writers and a few poets on board. Most most of the people on board were artists of some type. And there was a lot of chatter. And we were together 24-7. And so that was another element of the soundscape of the experience that I really didn't expect. Just like always people talking around me all the time. And some, if you were an extrovert, you would absolutely love that situation. But for some of us introverts, uh, you know, I got into the, I lucked, lucked out in one sense and then I had a cabin to myself and I found myself retreating to my little tiny bunk um, just for the quiet uh, a fair amount. So what, what was your cabin like? You had a, just a little bunk and uh, to yourself? Yeah, I had a little, uh, it, 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 every, all the cabins were the same. They had two bunk beds, one upper bunk and one lower bunk. And I would say the cabins themselves were maybe, oh, six feet by 12 feet. I mean, they were tiny, tiny, tiny. And each one had a little, um, you know, a little bathroom in it, something like that. So in that sense, it was kind of luxurious. You had your own, you, you know, you didn't have to share a bathroom. But uh, I would sleep on the upper bunk and I could look out my porthole. And the porthole was right at the level of the ocean. And particularly on those uh, stormy nights, it was it was wild because you could see the, you know, the ocean hitting the side of the boat. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. It was interesting. So what what's your two cents on what we can do about climate change? Well, uh, that's a that's such a uh, uh, an important question, Kevin. I've been thinking about it a lot since I got back. Um, and of course, I've got Google alerts for everything going on in the Arctic and, and the kind of climate indicators. Um, and I think the most important thing we can personally do is try to reduce in some ways our uh, dependence on fossil fuels and increase our use of renewables. Um, and on a personal level, you know, we have hybrid cars. A lot of people do. Um, we haven't quite made the jump to fully electric yet, but um, maybe we will down the road. Um, and I guess the other thing, uh, just speaking personally, is uh, I and we were just having this conversation. You know, the the drive to consume and the drive, the packaging and the um, all of that around it as we approach the holidays, we're pulling back on a lot of that. There's so much, for example, our sons are grown now, but what they, we often get them is 
closed for the holidays. And uh, clothes are one of the, the key sources of, uh, of, 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 uh, uh, pollution and, and problems. So we try to not consume as much. I think that's all we can do. And, and as a writer with my new project, I hope to raise awareness of the science of climate change. Just to circle back to Louise Arner, Arner Boyd, back in the 1930s, she was measuring the recession of glaciers and the way the, the glaciers were, um, were receding. And, you know, ever since then, there has been just this snowballing of our understanding of what's happening in this part of the world that affects the climate of everywhere else. Uh, one of the things I was surprised by was to get back to California and we were in the late fall and early 2023, we were hit with these torrential storms, rainstorms. And scientists were saying that those rainstorms really had their origins in the Arctic. And as the Arctic starts to melt, it's affecting climate everywhere else. And so, you know, I guess to be more aware of, for example, our, I feel pretty guilty these days when I think about taking an international flight. And I always look at what the, um, the you know, the carbon cost of the flights that I have to choose from are. And there you can make a choice there and you can purchase offsets, carbon offsets. So I'm just trying to raise my awareness and uh, consume and travel maybe a little bit less than I might have done so before. So, um, so the project you're, where are you at on that, that you're working on? Is that something that people can look for soon or are you still in the research phase? It's still the research phase. I'd say a couple years out, but okay. uh you know, it's it's coming along. I think it's going to be it's going to be not only an adventure story, but um, a pretty eye opening story about a part of the world that really does affect everybody on this planet. So, well, that's cool. you do that pretty well. Uh, that's, oh, thank you, Kevin. And in the in the meantime, I recommend everybody go back and and read um, your p- previous three books, and you're just the your wealth of other. Uh, writing. Well, that's really kind of you. Thank you so much. The story I did for the uh, on the Arct- Arctic was in Alta Journal, which is a uh, a, a journal out of uh, California. Um, but uh, a lovely piece that I recommend to everybody. Oh, thanks, Kevin. It's just great to talk to you. It's good to talk to you too. Um, where uh, where's a good place for people to find you? Well, I've got a website. It's uh, com. You can find me on X. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram as well. Julia Flynn Seiler. Great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Kevin. So good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too. This is the love story of two people. A storyteller who spits fire and playfulness for audiences that want to hear. And her husband, a therapist, who often has to be cautious about what he says because he's devoted to people who need to be heard. Like with any good love story, uncertainty and chance have led to more than a few miracles. To redemption from the murk. The sensation of being lifted out of the cold darkness and placed into the bright warmth of everything new. They've been doing this great podcast together called Factory Settings. 
which is ultimately about relationships and all their mess and joy and restorative vulnerability. It's about deciding to be better, even when you want to keep slouching. It's about the simple things that we complicate and the complicated things that we ignore. Most of all, it's about the timeless connections that make us new, woven together by the most fundamental needs and operations of our heart. As Rilke says in the third Duino elegy, look, we don't love like flowers with only one season behind us. When we love, a sap older than memory rises in our arms. Please welcome Bridget Phetasy and Jaron Montgomery. How are you guys doing? Good. We just got the baby down like two minutes ago. Literally, the, the nick of time. That is uh, perfect for what I wanted to talk to you guys about, which is like <laughs> the newness that comes with marriage and parenthood. Um, uh, I just got, we just got our baby down as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. That is a feat. And we, we all have, uh, we all have the flu right now. So. Oh, no. Yeah. Are you okay? No, no, it's terrible. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Okay. Do you want? Uh, do you? Oh, you can't reschedule, can you? Because it's like this week. That's nah, all right. No, I'll, it'll be fine. We'll, we'll, uh, we will make it fun. Yeah, we'll get through it. Okay, but if let you, us know what you let us know what you need. If yeah. Thing if we can support you in any way. If you need to Sounds reschedule, good, we understand. I don't want you like dying through this. <laughs> oh no, no, it's all good, man. Um. So I want to start by um, praising factory settings. Uh, I think you guys are doing something really cool. I think it's unique. Um, I think it's like, I'm going to sound like lib left Emily, but I think it's like brave. I think you guys are vulnerable a lot, but you're also like really strong a lot. Um, I think it's like a good thing for people to see especially married people and people with kids, but also people who don't have kids. Yeah. I mean, we've gotten, we've gotten, you know, thank you for that. That's, that's amazing to hear that. We've gotten some feedback from that, from people in her community and her family and stuff like that. And it's, it's interesting because I, you know, we both come from a sobriety background. We met in recovery. So we're both in recovery. So the idea of being sort of vulnerable and brave doesn't feel that way to me. Right. Like it just, it just feels like me sort of being me. I can't actually speak for, for Bridget on that. But so it's nice, it's nice to be able to sort of have a space where I can be myself and have that appeal to people. That's, that feels good. Yeah. I think the thing about factory settings that it, it feels like date night to me. It's like we, because we get to connect and, we don't even know a lot of the time. It really feels like we're picking a topic. We might as well be picking a topic <laughs> out of the bucket yeah, yeah, and just talking about it and seeing what comes up. And it is always some kind of revelation or something surprising. And I'll hear a story I've never heard. And I feel like even though it's a little bit navel gazy and introspective and there might be somewhat of a shelf life on that it forces our audience to do the same thing and they're i mean you can you can tell me but this is what we've heard is that if if someone always someone jokes it's like the best free therapy out there 
For sure. Yeah, if it feels very therapeutic and it feels like I'm like participating in therapy, which is like, and I'm also really glad that both of you are like, I mean, Jaron, you obviously it being your job, but um, very positive about therapy, um, which is like, we need more of that. Uh, we could all use more of that. Yeah, I, I think definitely that that's space for people to see. Um, you know, myself as a therapist, I get a lot of people coming to me looking for like I'm looking for a sane therapist. They want a sane therapist. So they want a therapist that maybe doesn't fit the the mold of what we stereotypically think a therapist is. You know, I'm not going to... Which is funny. Yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to... Yeah. Ironic. Yeah, I'm not going to preach to them about the sort of, you know, power hierarchies or, you know, the differences in the room like that. So so to, for people to hear that and and, you know, maybe go, okay, there's you know, therapy can be beneficial or there are therapists out there that um, are different than what I'm used to, especially if you spend a lot of time online. Yeah. Um, I, that, that's, that's positive. I, lo- I love seeing all the positive things come out of it. And the, she talked about the date night too, which, which I just love because she, she mentioned we, oftentimes we have a very loose understanding of what we're going to talk about. And then the mic that you know that comes on, and we just start talking about something completely different. Um, so in a way, it almost feels like not cheating because I, I feel like I should be doing more research or something. And this is my factory <laughs> settings, you know, yeah. like my my stuff, my anxieties. Like, oh, I should be you know really working really hard at this, but it's not because it, it comes effortless speaking to Bridget, and that's you know that's beautiful, and I think that comes across in the podcast. I feel like you guys like thrash. It feels like you're thrashing out something positive though. Like you're working on yourselves. Mm. I think that it's always surprising to think about things that you just take for granted, which was the whole point of the podcast, even simple ways that you view food, the way that you were raised to view exercise, what messages you were told about, I don't even know if we've done, we've done religion, you know, just talking about what those origins are for your beliefs. It's always really surprising what comes up or what memories are triggered while we talk about it. And all the comments we get from our audience, just people saying what came up for them and things that they were reminded of and just viewing those things through uh, almost like beginner's mind because it's just the water that you swim in. And then, you know, we completely take for granted this came up in our last episode, just the Western mind through which we view everything. Just the very fact that we were born and raised in America and raised in a liberal tolerant society is so crazily different from all these other places in the world. Yeah, I like that you you had the David Foster Wallace reference in there. <laughs> this is water. Like, yeah, it really is a wonderful speech. It oh, really is phenomenal. Like I I discovered David Foster Wallace when I was nineteen. Oh boy! And I also discovered depression at that time. That's yeah. I was going to say what's, what was going on at nineteen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so he was like, c- kind of helped me out of that storm. Um, 
so I have a very special, special place for him. But that, that speech in, in particular is like, I, I love that idea. Of He's like, just tort, you know, it's so interesting. These people that we connect to at, at those moments who kind of help us through, I feel like even Kurt Cobain and then they will tragically kind of take their life and you realize just how tortured, how sorry for swearing, just how yeah. tortured they this were. Is America. And just how <laughs> tortured they were. Want. We're trying not to swear in general because the child has started oh, repeating every word. I'm not great at that. Oh yeah. I need I need help. We need a swear jar. Swear jar. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we've been trying because we our oldest is three. We've been trying for two years now. And we're just, it's like, see, I can't say jackass anymore. It's like my favorite word. Uh, I know. I can't. Yeah. Even there's so suck. many. Jaren said, Jaren said <laughs> suck the other day and we were at the playground and, and, you know, it's a very pretty Christian oriented cul-de-sac that we're in. And the, I could see on the parents, the kids are a little bit older. Darren said something like, "Oh, that sucks." I'm like, you can't say "suck" around kids. I was, I was, on, I was unaware of that one was out of bounds. Yeah, that I'm learning. I, I didn't know that one either. I guess that's if you're in that, if that's your audience. I guess that we would be, could yeah. not say "suck" growing up in my family. That was way. That was almost a swear. Yeah, I don't like being like this. Sucks. We'd get in so much trouble. I, I was, yeah. the, I was the kid that taught all my other cousins how to swear. We should so do that a swear was definitely words. not in my household. Yeah, we should do a favorite swear word. We should do swear words <laughs> factory uh, settings. Yeah, oh man, that, yeah. That'd be great. Just curse the whole episode. Yeah. Yeah, well, but that is like that is I mean, I think that Jaron and I meeting in recovery and to go back to David David Foster Wallace being tortured, he and I are um a lot of the podcast is about recovery and depression. We've both, you know, struggled through a lot of, it's not just like reading about it academically in a book. It's something that we've had to wrestle through. I just celebrated 10 years and he had six years of sobriety and that's insane. You know, that that is like something that I could never even conceive of ever. Yeah. It's that, to, yeah, that that level of I mean sanity. I I was insane, you know, much of my life through throughout my twenties and thirties, and just aimlessly wandering and very self serving and self seeking. And so to have this clarity, even even though it's it's a struggle still, right? You know, life is life is oftentimes a struggle, um, but to be able to have that clarity and that awareness to enjoy and appreciate the things that I have in my life is a, is a blessing and not something I grew up with or something that I, I really ever experienced till I got older and got sober and did some therapy and like looked, looked inward a little bit. Yeah. Someone else. It was interesting. The pie, a podcast I did today, we were talking about this kind of civilizational battle that it feels like we're in and there's just a large faction of people who are nihilistic and mad and and they want to kind of tear the west down and and all of the things and then there are people who are humble and and grateful and there's something about depression that's very humbling to me. There's something about getting sober that's extremely humbling. And 
I just don't take very much for granted. You know, there, there, but for the grace of God, go I is one of my favorite expressions because I mean, it could have gone a lot of other ways that it didn't go. I was very lucky all those years that I was out still using. And I was joking last night on stage, you know, had I not got sober 10 years ago, I'd probably be dead of a fentanyl overdose, almost undoubtedly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely echo some of those thoughts. I think, you know, anyone that's got sober time or even has just struggled like yourself with depression, if you, if you can come out on the other side of that, there's, there's oftentimes a greater appreciation for, for what you have, just that ability to sort of experience life in its fullest form is, is corny as that may sound saying out live out loud that, that I think is, is a, is a byproduct of, of going through some of these, this suffering. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I think that's where like the newness element comes into me. It's, it's like, you know, when you convert to something, you mm. think of conversion as like, okay, I did it. I got there. It's, you know, I'm converted, but it's like, no, that's where you start working. That's mm-hmm. where the, like you realize that the limitations make for happiness, but it's also like a grueling to, to like, keep those walls up to keep your sanity to, to like say, no, I don't, it would be easier for me to like pound some whiskey right now, but I, it wouldn't be better. Like Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be good. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. The idea of converting, because in some ways I've converted to even parenthood feels that way. Definitely. And just seeing the world through her eyes is, I mean, talk about, humbling and grateful and wonder. She just has a natural sense of wonder that I don't want to lose. I don't want to take it for granted. There have been so many times where I just have lost sight of just what a miracle this all is. And she reminds me on the daily, just moonrise stars moonrise stars you know jupiter she wants to look at all the planets she's obsessed with this documentary series called becoming you and it's basically all about how we develop our identity and language and motion in the first five years of our life and what a miracle that is just like how we become sentient beings well, it's, it's wild. It's, and we take it all for granted. Just the fact that I'm sitting here and my heart is beating and I don't have to think about it. And it's, it, it's all a miracle, really, truly. Yeah. I, I could never come close to imagining what this experience was going to be like as a, to be a father. I, I, I didn't think it was in the cards for me until I, I met Bridget. I never really thought I, I wanted to be kid. Uh, wanted to be a father or have kids and never met anyone that sort of that, you know, inspired that in me until I met Bridget. And then I thought, you know, because of, of my age and, you know, I thought maybe we were too late. And so to have what we have now is just amazing. Yeah. There are two things I, I talk about sometimes that I, I think you can't replicate in this life. You can't um, duplicate the experience in any way. And it's one of them's being a parent and the other is, I think, serving in the military alongside somebody, alongside somebody, especially in battle. I don't think you can simulate Very similar. Those. Well, <laughs> I, I, I always thought about these things because, you know, I have my dog here and I very, very similar. I have my dog here. I love my dog. 
I would do anything my dog. Somebody asked me at the dentist if I would kill for my dog. And I was like, yeah, I would kill for my dog. <laughs> so, right? What are you I, talking I, about at the dentist? It was a long story. Well, because it started with, would you, would you kill for your daughter? It was, you know, this was the reception yeah. my dentist, just a weird conversation. And I was like, oh yeah, without a doubt. And my dog, yes, without a doubt. But those things are different. My dog and my daughter are different. There's nothing that can simulate that. And I think that's probably, that I imagine that to be true for people that have served. And someone had mentioned, he says, oh, that's because those are both situations where you have to put your put your life or put someone else's life ahead of yours like mm-hmm. you have to be in a position where you're willing to sacrifice your life for somebody else's either the man or woman next to you or your 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 child and and that really sort of made sense to me because it's my you know i'm in you know my late 40s and it's been about me it's the, it yeah. was the jaron show right there was bridget talked about humility earlier there's <laughs> I mean, I had feigned humility, but ab- like real humility? No, I don't know about that. I mean, I do think it, I go, go back to this. I can't let go of this thought of converting either because I was so kind of antinatalist. I was just that classic liberal in my 20s who was, I mean, some of you it were made, anti- antinatalist. Oh, in, in my 20s? 20s, definitely. I was, I mean, I was when definitely. Did it stop? Like, when did you change? Um, I mean, I was never like against other people having kids, but I, I've written about this. I definitely was like those breeders. And I used to joke about how I was the, you know, freest person on the Christmas card wall and all these people with their balls and chains and children <laughs> and dogs and now I mortgages and now I have all of the above. And, and part of it was a cope, I'm sure, looking back, particularly as I approached my 30s and was in my 30s. And part of it was really true. I mean, I I felt very strongly about just being free and unentangled. And all I wanted to do was travel the world and be able to just take my backpack and not have to, I mean, you know, traveling with children is another ball game and they come with so much stuff. And I traveled around the world with a backpack for years. And, you know, it's not to say that I can't do that with her again sometime, but not, not, not now. And I, I valued my freedom. I I saw love as an impingement to freedom. Mm. And when I was on this ashram, actually, this weird little guru, he did my runes and said that my life's mission was to figure out how to balance love and freedom. Mm. Because I, I saw love as something that would inhibit my ability to be free. And it's actually been incredibly liberating. And it started with my dog <laughs> started with the dog. Yeah. Yeah. She was the first ball and chain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, so I've been really into this concept of like the other, um, which is like, I mean, like finding God or finding love and through other people. Um, like, cause I, I understand that I, like, I won't, I will never judge anybody who says like, no, I don't want to have kids. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like it that other people have kids. I don't even mind that. Like, I don't mind. I'm not atheist, but I don't mind people being atheists. And I, I wouldn't, I, I would never get rid of atheists. You know, I, I, I want them to exist. Um, 
but there, there is this idea of like when you become a parent and I assume when you become uh, when you're a soldier as well, like willing the good of the other is like the greatest, the greatest thing you can do. And I think it's like, I think it leads you to the, like what life means. Mm. And I think it is, I think it leads to love. I think love is the meaning of life. I know that's a simplification, but. Yeah, there's something. It is just so wild how, you know, I find the love I have for my child terrifying. It is like absolutely terrifying to me. Yeah. Because. In some ways, that little creature holds all of my joy. Yeah. If anything happened to her, it would be like, well, bye, Joy. You're you're never the same. You can talk to any parent who's lost a child. You're just never the same. Mm-mm. And that is terrifying. But I guess it is that that quote, you know, the greater the the risk, the higher the reward or whatever. You always say this. Talk about Do you, I? Well, you talk about just how, <laughs> you know, like the the depth of your love is essentially Oh, yes. That's that. Um, there's a, th- that concept. I actually think it was a, a, I heard Jordan Peterson say it or something, but it's, it comes from kind of that Macbeth idea that he says that your, 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 what is it? Your sorrow uh, must not be measured by his worth for then it hath no end. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's, but you also, you can only grieve, for, you know, is, as much as you've loved, right? So if you yeah. love deeply, your grief is going to be the counterpoint to that, right? So, so you know, if you're if this, you know, this sort of shallow experiences you have and these relationships you have are these shallow ones, then your your grief is only going to be that. It may it may feel differently because you lack the ability to emotionally regulate or your distress tolerance is low or some other thing, but that that true love and true grief are, are balanced on either end of this sort of spectrum. And I think that makes sense to me. And, you know, and I think you see that concept in a lot of different things. And it's it scary, man. Me, it's, it have, you guys, have you guys done an, an emergency room visit? Have you guys experienced that? Not yet. And I dread it. Yeah. It's ter- we, we did with our oldest. She busted three teeth out. She <sighs> fell out of her crib and knocked them out. And it was wow. like, what was that? What was that like for you? I mean, like something different than suicidal. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, like just like take my teeth. I don't yeah. need teeth anymore. I don't yeah. give a shit about my teeth. <laughs> Can, I just want her to have teeth, you know. Um, and it's, it's like, it's brutal. Yeah. It's like I've never cried like that, and and I like held it in. I held it in the whole time, and, and like. We, we were in the waiting room for a long time and then we had to go to a dentist and like I had to like we had to hold her down when they were like uh. pulling the teeth out and uh, like I I hadn't cried the whole time but like then it just like all came out um, yeah. and it was like just the, t- the tears of like a parent uh, I under- like I understood it all in that moment that's why this stuff that's like you know we're in the middle of this like Israel, Palestine, insanity. And the, there is nothing more, more evil to me than the idea of somebody doing something to my kid and me being helpless to stop it. I can't, I would rather (sighs) die. Torture. Yeah. I would rather die. 
it, it is the that is like the truly sickest, most evil thing you can do. I would have to be killed. Yeah. Like they would have to kill me to stop me from yeah. that. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And, you, and you're you're right too that like why? <laughs> why? Why do people do that, man? Because it's pure sadism. I mean, it's pure yeah. evil. It's just it is purely for the sake of knowing it's the worst thing you can do. Which is why it, it, it there's no other reason you know there's the the point is to be as cruel as you can possibly be it's just like and that is my that would be the worst i cannot think of anything worse i just it's horrific yeah it's it's tough out there right now you know i think people are this time of year is tough and the holidays are here and then we have all of this like it's like, you know, feels like the gates of hell opened on October 7th and all the protests every weekend and people being particularly unhinged after years of kind of increasing unhingedness, <laughs> unhingedness. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, think. Sorry, sorry. No, no, go on. I forgot. No, I, I was going to say, I think we, we generally, we try to, um, we try to avoid politics and factory settings as much as we can, though it's unavoidable, unavoidable at times. I'm passionate about some of the stuff I have passionate ideas. I like to debate and, and argue. And I think we, though this, this most recent, um, things going on between Israel and Hamas, we talked about in the last factory settings, mm -hmm. uh, because it was so, it's been so upsetting. It's, I go on. I love that you went like it was. Gr there was a lot of grieving, and not in the, this most recent one, but the one before. Like you did what you you had to do. What all of us had to do when we saw that. When we, you know, especially Bridget, you and me being in the media, going through all this stuff. Ugh, God, go, like there's no escape. No. Um, and but I I was also thinking, Jared. My my wife is a counselor as well. So it's like there's this kind of cool dynamic that I understand with you guys. Um, that's sort of like it's sort of like a public private thing. Like me and Bridget are like getting our words out there. That's what our job is. Yep. And as as like openly as possible. And like um like Car Caroline, my wife works with eating disorder patients and it's like the opposite. It's like sometimes she's just pulling the words out of like total emptiness. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's very well said, pulling the words out of total emptiness. Cause that, that's a really difficult population to work with that, that Caroline, you said. Yeah. Caroline yeah. works with. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting sort of juxtaposing that, uh, you know, having a public space like this, like factory settings uh, where Bridget and I talk about this stuff and, you know, perhaps I'm a little too candid for what my profession maybe calls for, but I've never, I've also, you know, I also trust myself to, to know um, where those boundaries are in relationships to my to my clients, for my patients and where I am in the room with them. So, but yeah, that's, that's, it's, 
really interesting that that concept of of public private that you're you're very public and I'm very private as far as it, what it comes to in terms of how we work really or how we operate. That's good for a household. Like that's that's the model of a successful household. This yeah. is your one headshot per couple. One headshot per couple. That's been Bridget's model. My rule. <laughs> yeah, there. The, I was thinking too, just how when I, you know, I came down from doing a podcast and Jaron was rocking or well, rocking the child, and I try not to use her name. Um, Jaron was rocking her and trying to get her down, and then I took over, and then we came up here, and it is a very modern division of labor, but I see it actually in so, so many of the families that are our generation and younger. It's good. The men are so much more involved in the yeah. kids than certainly my dad and all my uncles were in their, with their day-to-day kids. I don't know what your experience of that is, but it's, you know, we split the housework, we split the, we split the work work. It's like, we're both, he's building his, practice and I've got this going on and it's it's just very it feels very balanced yeah that's that's the thing the other thing I was gonna say to Jaren is like I feel like you're um a good model for masculinity like uh Bridget you wrote about it in the the newborn bubble piece about Mm. like how you you'd never been more attracted um like I think that is a, a something that like society needs to know more about. Um, that like being a man and and being a woman involves like sacrifice and and, and like you know being there with a newborn at four a.m. and trying to get those damn <coughs> buttons to like <laughs> of the onesie and mm-hmm. the baby's losing it and having your partner come in and just like say it's all right take over um like i i like that about our generation like we're um we don't ever have to be alone in a marriage especially parenthood and if someone someone kind of if someone abandons the other their partner it's like we all kind of look at it and we're like i don't know that's not great yeah it's so different now i think too one of the things that i see there there's like very strange the conversation around masculinity is so dysfunctional right now i mean femininity too but i feel like from the left you got like toxic masculinity and men are all bad and men are evil but then on almost as a reaction to it you got the the loudest voices are these like almost parody hyper masculine types who are borderline pimps or whatever, whatever they kind of, it's all about like getting your, your cars and your women. And, and I don't know, there's, there are people in the space who I would say represent kind of the best of masculinity, but I wish they had larger followings and, and everyone was kind of looking up to them. Like Mike Jones from Grand Thumb, I think is a great example of someone who's family man, family man, masculine, but a softy, you know, he's, he's still very vulnerable. And I think that's the, I mean, it's, this is an interesting conversation and something I've, 
I've thought a lot about, but not maybe spoken as much about the, that concept of, of masculinity. Bridget talked about the toxic masculinity and then the counterpart is very much the Andrew Tate, right? Those are the two <laughs> extremes, right? I don't want my... I wouldn't want my kids associating or, or with either of those sort of extremes, but this this part in the middle where where it's okay to be in touch with, um, I mean, you know, the, that divine feminine, right, or some sort of yeah. feminine side. There's there's that, and it's y- okay to change a end. diaper. And it's oh yeah, there's so many yeah. things, you know. Yeah. And there's you know, you can shoot guns and then you know take the take and do the laundry to the library, you know, <laughs> and do laundry. And I, you know, and and being okay with all that stuff. It's it's. It's wild to me that that it's not as acceptable as as it should be. But it is, but you did mention it is. It feels like it's getting more. More people are okay with that that division of labor and this mixing and match maxing matching of roles. Then it doesn't mean that there are there are more masculine roles and more feminine roles. And I think those are important. But but that being able to move within you know one another's spaces um, is is important. I think. And I, and also having your own spaces, you know, your time with the the guys and I have, and something else I was thinking about on the, on the, in the right wing commentary a lot, I see there's almost like this anti-therapy rhetoric that I'll see pop up and it's, this this bothers me. I've heard this a lot. I went on a podcast once where the guy was very against therapy and even soldiers in his own audience were get pushing back and like, what do you, P, what about PTSD? And, you know, people, I don't, on the left, everything is therapeutic and the language has <laughs> infected everything. And now words have no meaning, but on, on the right again, and it's like, these things are reactions to one another. There's this like, Oh, you don't need therapy. You don't need, you know, everybody's over medicated. True. Everyone is overmedicated. I I don't think therapy is for everybody. And if you have the wrong therapist, because as Jaron can attest, it's mostly about the re- therapeutic relationship. For it sure. might not be helpful, but to just poo-poo it and dismiss it. And some people do need meds even for a yeah. short period of time. And to just dismiss that and put something in someone's head, it's like you're you're messing with people's lives. You know, that that some of these things are life-saving. Yeah, I, I wonder how much of that is reactionary, right? Like you said yeah. to the to the left's overly therapeutic <laughs> milieu that they've created, and then if they're you know, and then some people it is a factory setting for them. Maybe they grew up you know in a household that's that you know where therapy is looked down or frowned upon or something like that. I I have I I work with a lot of clients um, that maybe therapy hasn't worked for them or they've never really done that before or you know it, they just never thought they would be the type of person to do therapy um so so i i get that a lot in the room with with my clients that that cuz i mean i've had times in grad school and even since i've become licensed where i'm like is my job entirely bullshit <laughs> is this really necessary and and it, it's just you know, those are fleeting thoughts that come up, you know, and they're in those moments where I'm like, you know, you, you know, because I've solved this problem of mine, everybody should be able to solve this problem of theirs, you know, and it's, it's, it passes pretty quickly. And then I realize, you know, how much I've benefited from it 
how much people in my life benefit benefited from it. And I, and I, you know, I can't imagine. And how many people would benefit from how it. many people would, but I'm also, <laughs> oh, I'm sure. also a terrible yeah. salesman. I'm not the type, like that person wants to say therapies, I'm going to be like, Hey, glad you've never needed therapy. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. I mean, you, I don't dude. have a problem <laughs> if you're saying that to your buddy, but if you're, you have an audience of them, siblings, like I want to kill myself. They're like, suck it up, bro. No, but if you have an audience of a million people, it feels irresponsible. For sure. Yeah. No, I, that makes that sure. That makes sense. But I, I, again, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm the type of person or I'm not the one to be, to necessarily challenge that. Maybe if I were in that place, I, I would, or I'd be, I'd love to have a conversation about it. But I'm like, and w- tell me why you feel that way. Well, because this is the, you know, this is the, you know, tell me, tell me about your first experience with therapy. Tell me why you hate therapy so yeah. badly. And <laughs> an hour later, and they're crying. Yeah. <laughs> I hate therapy. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's like the know. Tony Soprano thing. Where he's like, yeah, giving birth. Exactly. Like, well, sometimes it feels like taking it. Like, yeah, I, I mean, that's they, the Sopranos probably did a pretty good job of mainstreaming therapy a little bit more for the I tough imagine. guys. For the tough guys, because there's yeah. still you still hear that. I, I I I wouldn't say I specialize in one thing in particular. I, my my background is in substance abuse and dual diagnosis stuff, and I spent a lot of time working with men and men's issues and relationship things. Um, but that there's, there's still, even in this therapeutic milieu we're seeing, there's still a stigma associated with, with, you know, a, a large group of men that think therapy is not okay or that it's not manly to do. And that's, I mean, that's probably more, on the, on the, rips, that's probably bro. more yeah. on the right side of the spectrum as opposed to the left. But I work with a lot of people you know, right of center, right? That I guess if you had to align them politically or something like that, and there's still that stigma and it's, um, and that's, you know, that's where I'm glad something like factory settings exists or a space like this, this, this podcast with you, or, you know, I can just hopefully come off as a reasonably sane therapist and model some good positive masculine behavior <laughs> with a touch of vulnerability. Just do uh, some reps, just bro. Some reps. Yeah. Just Deepen your pain. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wild. I, I, I have a, like, I have guy friends who will like talk to me about marriage problems. And the first thing I ask him is like, are you in, you in marriage counseling or couples counseling? Either one. And it's like, they're always surprised when I ask that. I'm like, you need to be in marriage counseling, man. Like it's really good. Like you said, it'll take you it'll probably take you a while. You you probably won't strike out with a perfect counselor first. But I think if there were more marriages that had marriage counselors, we would probably all be happier people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really good point because most people, when they you know come into my online office <laughs> right now is it they're you know they're at their low point they're not coming yeah. in off a win and 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 odds are they've probably thought for months or years even i should get therapy i should get therapy and then it gets to a point where it's so bad they that they have to reach out marriage counseling is the same way if you know i think if if more people came in earlier rather than later you'd see a lot a lot more healthy and happy marriages and probably much less divorce rates do you think that do you think that 
you should get individual therapy before you go to marriage counseling. What, you're asking me. Yeah, I'm wondering, do you think, do you think like you would recommend that people just try and work on their stuff individually? Because I was so joking I, the other day that, that everybody seems to, my therapist was saying that she started seeing someone because they were in marriage counseling and then she, the person that she's seeing needed their own therapy. I'm like, this is like lawyering up. No, no, this is... That's really funny because I, I would... <laughs> I likely would recommend someone coming into marriage counseling. To, I think it would be really helpful for people to have their own therapists, especially as sort of things come up. I, it would probably depend on where you are in in, in the relationship. Um, it, I, I couldn't really give a blanket statement like you should have this or you mm. should do that. I'll, I'll, I mean, I do work with people or I have a couple of people that I work with that are in couples counseling and they've come to me because their spouse has a therapist and they're like, <laughs> they're ther- I was told I needed a <laughs> they're therapist. Learning, they're learning <laughs> and, and, and it's, and, and it's, I think that's important because a lot of stuff comes up during marriage counseling and yeah. oftentimes you can be unsure of, do I bring this to my partner? And so having another space you can go to, to bring that it can be beneficial. Now, this, this also ends up costing a lot of money. You're right. talking about <laughs> multiple individual counselors and a marriage counselor. And sometimes, you know, you have a, someone has a counselor and they <laughs> decide to bring divorce. the partner into the <laughs> sessions, but they're actually that person's individual counselor. And it can oh, get yeah. really weird. I, I think you have to sort of, you know, take that on an individual basis. But I, I didn't, you know encourage people in marriage counseling to perhaps do, do individual therapy. I don't, I don't know that it could hurt if it's, if it's within your means. It's cheaper than divorce. I feel like individual counseling could turn into propaganda, like self propaganda. Mm. Whereas like if you do marriage counseling, you have a counselor who's like, you are being crazy. She is kind of right. She's also being crazy. Uh, she's not saying that you're not saying that you guys are saying the same thing. And for us, like, okay, yeah, I guess that's okay. Is it? Yeah. Marriage counseling seems challenging just because you try, you have to try and say, I mean, unless you're, because it wouldn't be fair to be working with one person and then have them come in as the mayor, you know, you kind of have to be neutral, I think. Yeah. If you, if say, say someone came to a therapist and then they were uh, like, I want to bring they, my they want, I want to bring my partner in. That initial patient is that person's therapist, right? Mm-hmm. You are not suddenly I'm a marriage counselor, and there's a there's a primary patient there. Okay, a, there's a, a so so that would be so they need a be, lawyer. They need the therapist. Eth- <laughs> almost uh, <laughs> ethical to try to come into that sort of role. It doesn't mean you couldn't bring them in for sessions and make it some sort of hybrid thing, but it, it would, it, I would, I would need to make the couple I was working with very clear that, you know, person X is my client. And now you were bringing you into the space. My responsibility is, is to that original sort of client. And ideally, ideally, it doesn't always happen is that these therapists say a marriage counselor and an individual therapist would be communicating on some level releases of information would be signed so that I could make sure that I know what they're working on in marriage counseling so that I can support them and provide a space. But then you've got like secrets policies and shit like this. <laughs> like, have you heard of this in marriage counseling? So the, the, so 
therapists have either, you know, a secret policy or no secret policy, right? Meaning, you know, if someone comes to me, you know, with something and I'm like, holy, you should tell your partner about this. If I have a no secrets policy, I, I can tell, I can say, hey, look, I would really encourage you to tell this person you're doing X, Y, and Z, or you, you know, you have a disease or something like that. Um, if not, I'm, I'm, I feel obligated to tell them that, or you can have a no secrets policy where, uh, where, you know, whatever you say stays with me and it's wait. So that's a secrets policy secrets versus no secrets policy. Okay. So secrets as you, Oh, sorry. Did I get that? Did I say them backwards? You just said no secrets twice. So I was confused, but secrets as you keep the, keep their secrets. secrets. And I think most States are default secrets kept, but it makes really complicated. um, I would hate that. Well, well, You're yeah, like, because blowing, I'm, I'm giving blowjobs <laughs> to Jimmy every night behind the bowling alley. Well, and, he, and you just I have to go sit there and be like, how are you doing, Jaren? Like, oh, God. Wait, I can't get these images out of my head. Because you can't see, because if you've got, if, you, if someone comes to you and they know you're going to tell their partner or something, there's, they're likely to hold, withhold things from you. But then what happens when they drop this bombshell that's, you know, that you feel is, it really needs to be, out there, what do you do with those things? It's, it's, I'm glad I don't, I don't specialize in marriage therapy. I, 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 I think you'd be really good at I, it. I like the idea of working with couples and people in relationships. I think I'm very good at that stuff, but it is a very specialized skill set. Um, you know, so a lot of people work exclusively with, with couples. That's like eating disorders would be, I can see why that would be specialized. I mean, when I, I was, doing yoga and coaching, life coaching. And then I ended up working with a bunch of young girls who had eating disorders. And oh, it was so above my pay grade. That stuff is so complex and it has so much to do with control and, you know, their family systems and their relationship to food. And then it's not like, you know, I feel kind of grateful that I was just a simple addict who could quit a substance because you can't quit eating. So you have to just it's it's like what is it like seven years they say before you're kind of fully recovered from an eating disorder. It's it's really crazy. I think statistically that's that has the highest levels of suicide more so than depression, eating disorder, and oh, fatality. Wow. Yeah. yeah, fatality. Because it's so, so it's, parasitic that it yeah. just it kills them. Yeah. yeah, I I I don't work with that population. I've worked with people that have maybe had struggled with it in the past and I've worked with a lot of teens in the past as well. And you see <laughs> you see a lot of That's when we first heard about Andrew Tate. That's when we first heard I was from, from the teens. teens. Andrew Tate. Who's this Andrew Tate? Because the girls were coming can you say that? Are you allowed to talk about how they they exposed us you sure <laughs> yeah Tate? Yeah, yeah. They yeah. I had some teen clients talk about Andrew Tate and that their boyfriend was acting a certain way because he's, they started walk, watching Andrew Tate. And I was like, who is this Andrew Tate? I do not uh, even want to know. We heard about it from the teens. Wow. I heard the most messed up story the other night about this, actually. Remember that woman we were talking to at the event? Oh. And she was telling me that she... It's a long story, but basically she has this young woman in her life who's around 21 that she's kind of mentoring and the woman was in a relationship with this guy that was just starting and then he he asked her what her body count was and i was like oh did he listen to andrew tate she's like how 
how'd you know? It's like, this is, this is such toxic. Talk about like toxic rhetoric that's infecting the minds of young people. How are they even dating or doing anything? It's such a, it's a, it's, it's a disaster out there. So it's not like an ironic thing. No, he asked her and, and then, and they're 21. They're not, it's not like uh, they're teenagers. They're young adults. And then I don't know. I don't know if he went out with her. Yeah, it sounds terrible. (laughs) I'm I'm not a a teenager. I saw this meme online that's gone around a few times. It said, people in relationships, do you guys, people who got into relationships in the past five years or something, do you feel like you got on the last plane out of NOM or something like that? I'm like, I, I actually do feel that way. <laughs> Rough out there. A lot of my single friends, th- like their eyes will bulge and th- it's like, stay as long as you can. Like, <laughs> stay married. Yeah. Don't do this. Like uh, friends who've gotten divorced. Oh, I have a date. Like, I have a standup routine that I'm trying to work out that I'm going to have Jaron help me with, actually. But I was I joke about how if I were him or a marriage counselor, I would just take the dating apps and be like, do you see this? this and just have <laughs> this them swipe. Be like, this is your, this is your future. Is this really what you want? Uh, well, shit. Oh, no. I want to keep talking, but I, I guess we got to wrap up. Um, I really We're love fine. what you guys are doing. <laughs> yeah. Let's keep going. Yeah. If you guys don't mind. No, um, she's baby's, baby's, baby's still, still down. Bleeping. That's God, I don't even think she's moved. Does she have her blanket? She's just hanging out. Yeah, she's good. You guys got you guys have Cubo? We have what do we have? We have Nanit. 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 It was a it was it was the breathing thing, right? You oh know, yeah. So she had a breathing band and we we still use the I cameras. got it from the Ellen show. The Ellen Mother's Day show. We, I went nice. to the last Ellen Mother's Day show because my friend was a producer and I told him I was pregnant and he was like, You gotta come. They give away so much stuff. And they gave I mean, it was like ten thousand dollars worth of stuff. of stuff. It was crazy. <laughs> so one of the gifts was Nana and we didn't use it for a while and then we started using it and it was actually great it was very beneficial it's like a surveillance state like what totally. we have on our kids totally she but looks I up at it. the camera and she's like mommy knows <laughs> 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 we're in there i'm like oh no she knows now <laughs> she's did, aware be, did becoming a parent like change your politics at all uh, that's an interesting question. I, you know what it did? It made me more aware of what Inez always says, Inez Stepman. Um, she's always talking about how you can't set the culture war out. It will come to you. Mm. And I think being Gen X and being kind of caught in the crossfire of the culture wars and being able to kind of snarkily laugh at everybody who cared so much and, and, and be a little bit removed from it. It, it made me realize like, ah, like I've, I've got to care about what these kids are learning in school now. You know, I, yeah. I it actually is going to affect me. I can't just, it's not theoretical. So 
I don't know that it changed my politics so much as it made me realize that I might have to engage in politics eventually or join a school board or be vocal about whatever is going on in my school system and pay attention to that stuff in a way that I didn't, I could pay attention to, but it was really kind of just peripheral. Yeah, I think that's a a very similar experience. I I don't know that it changed. Um, I probably became more conservative on certain issues. Yeah. Uh, But I think it it brought to the forefront, especially where we were living, where we came from LA, California, and moved to Texas. And I think when I had became sort of hyper aware of just how bad California was in terms of policy and Safety, safety, and I did not want to raise my daughter in that environment. So, you know, before I could not, I could not act on that. It's just you know me and my wife, and we're kind of doing our own thing. But you bring this other creature into the world, and it's like, oh, this is maybe not the best place to raise her. So, if anything, rather than change my politics, it confirmed (laughs) in a lot of ways that I was on the right side of things. If anything, it just made us aggressively more anxious to get out of California more than we already were. But those, those are those are a lot of my factory settings. I was raised conservative. Um, yeah, I think I'd already even prior to meeting Jaron, I had my politics had. I you know, there's a lot of talk about how the left left me, which in some cases, as you see with the progressive lunatics ripping down posters of kidnapped children, they did leave a lot of people behind. Yeah. Yeah. They left anyone with a heart and reasonable. Um, the, the, so there's that, but then there's also just me getting older, writing for Playboy. I was exposed to a, a kind of, more flyover Midwestern good old boy audience, I guess, or red-blooded American male audience. And then started learning more about... I I always talk about how like the gun debate was the first time that I was like, I don't know anything. I mean, truly, I know nothing. I'm out here on Twitter spouting off about this school shooting. I don't know. I don't know how to shoot a gun. I I didn't know how to hold a gun. I didn't know what you needed to do to get a gun in California. Mm -hmm. It's funny. A lot of liberals went through this recently, post October 7th. You saw it in the Jewish community. A lot of my more conservative friends were like, oh, my liberal Jewish friends are suddenly realizing you can't just like go to Target and get a gun in New York. (laughs) And um, that was definitely, I I didn't know anything. And that was really the beginning of just... I was talking about this on Twitter just the other day. People were like, oh, has anyone talked about what it's like to, you know, psychologically like to be politically homeless? And I think there was a lot of cognitive dissonance and feelings of alienation and feeling lost as I, as I realized what an idiot I was. <laughs> and also as the left was kind of leaving me. But then you, then it's just like, okay, put yourself in beginner's mind. You, I've made a whole new group of friends. I'm in a, whole different state. I I opened myself up to knowing nothing and and just being open to learning. So I think that my politics had shifted quite a bit before I even got married. And in fact, I don't know that 
had they not, Jaron and I would have even been able to to date. It wouldn't have worked. You know, it just if your politics hadn't changed. You yeah, might not no. Have I mean, yeah. I remember when we first went on our first. I first went over to his house and took a picture of all the books. <laughs> oh yeah, by the first picture, it was. Uh, it was like Ion. Souls in that chin. It was the archipelago. It was Jordan Peterson. I think there might Christina Huff Summers. Christina Huff Summers. And I was like, what should I do, you guys? And there were people in my mentions like, run, this is a Nazi. I was like, what? I was like, I was right next to my Dungeon Master's Guide. Like, how can you think that poorly? It was so funny. Just the responses to it. People were like, he's a keeper. But there were a lot of people who were like, get out. The best, the best response that was the, the that I had the abridged version of the Gulag Archipelago. Someone <laughs> was like, was someone was far. like, someone was like shaking my damn head. <laughs> That's the greatest answer. You're right. I should not have the abridged version. I apologize. Like conservative. The thing I noticed is like conservatives like don't have a problem that I have like a section of Marx. Mm-hmm. You know. And like critical race theory over there and, and critical theory and all, you know, and I've like engaged with those and, and some of them, I, those ideas I really like, mm-hmm. uh, but like the left, um, I, I just found that dynamic increasingly like conservatives were like nice and like I could, I could say like, no, I don't want to do that. And they would be fine with it. Um, and it was like, I could say like, don't tell me what to do which used to be the ethos that guided the left and why, you know, I I wasn't ever really politically homeless. I I, like, that's kind of what I always was. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's been weird, like the last 12 years and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, working for Glenn has been like, uh, I've got a lot of friends in the industry. Yeah. Nobody, absolutely nobody has been kinder or more supportive of me than Glenn Beck has. Yeah. He's, he's so such a teddy bear. He's, he's a teddy bear. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good man. Um, which he's is, also hilarious. He's funny. <laughs> he's, he's yeah. Funny. He's funny. <laughs> now that I think that's a, that's such an interesting point. Cause you know, I, I'm not the most social person. I'm pretty introverted. I'm, I'd be happy staying at home most of the time. But, we, you know, I've gone out with Bridget and we go out and, you know, it's a lot of the circles she moves in, moves in, have um, conservative people, whether they're pundits or writers or some sort of figures. And I always feel much more comfortable at those events than any other events. I, I don't have to worry about saying the wrong thing. Yeah. Not, it's just... They're people I want to hang out with. If I get to yeah. choose to hang out with, I'm definitely choosing one crowd over the oh, other. Oh, yeah. I remember when you the first... Gra- oh, go oh, on. Sorry. When were you in grad school? To, I, I graduated in 2020 or 2021. I don't... 2020. 2020. Okay. So, yeah. It was, I, it was the P. It was woke central. Yeah. I, my cohort that I was in with... 20 or 22 people was, was, um, I mean, insane for lack of a better word. There's oh, one yeah. guy that I'm still Militant. friends with, but it was just struggle sessions and yeah. just what is happening. And I, I mean, my first class there, I remember because it had been, it was something like 10 years between me getting my undergraduate degree and then going back to grad school. 
and I was a history major. I'd gotten a degree in history. I loved history. So I had to take a beginning psychology course, like a one hour, six hour course. And uh, the professor basically within half an hour brought Trump up and the fact that it was only a matter of time before conservatism was in the DSM. It was a mental <laughs> illness, basically. And, and there's five other people around and they're like nodding yes. And I'm going, what the f***? How am I going to do this for the next two years? And I think Bridget re- remembers me probably talking about it later, having to sort of pick and choose my battles. Because yeah. I'm not going to sit there and just let this stuff happen, but I also have to get through this, <laughs> this two years, um, you know, without, you know, getting bogged down every second trying to, you know, defend myself. So. Where did you fall on the privilege scale? When you oh, yeah. Well, that was another one in one of the first classes we had to take. We did. I forget what the exercise is called, but where you all line up. And then if you had oh, no. two parents, if you were this, you were that. And it's me and my like one white friend. We're way oh. at the front. And we know what this is. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of like laughing a little bit, right? we like, okay, we know where this well, is going. And yeah. I, yeah, I was way up there. Super privileged. <laughs> even with the addiction. Even with the addiction. And the because divorce. It's, because that stuff's, you know doesn't matter because <laughs> it's less it, it matters I think it's funny that they did it on a roof that we did it at the top of the Wait, parking lot what if i just threw my yeah off? i feel like yeah. they're like all right you're the most privileged you've got to jump to the parts yeah it was just, <laughs> weirdly it was threatening yeah i've got some great <laughs> stories that um I, I was in grad, grad school during uh the trump election uh, oh, when God. he was elected oh, boy oh man it was it was unreal yeah, I it think. was like I've never I've never seen anything like it. Like, uh, just like psychosis. Yeah, people, yeah. Lot people had lost yeah. their mind. It was twenty. I think twenty eighteen is when I started. Yeah, my I remember my sister because she had kids who were in high school and grade school, and they would or in middle school, and they would come home. <laughs> And tell them what their teachers were saying. And she would have to sit them down and be like, your teachers are insane. Do not listen to them. They've lost their minds. I can't believe they're even saying this to you. I mean, yeah, people, people really, because we went right from that into a pandemic. And so people really got to kind of just hide how insane they were behind the pandemic because there would have been a real reckoning if it had just been (laughs) Trump to Biden. And then, you know, I don't think like the January, what day was it? The January. You're talking about the (laughs) January 6th or whatever. Insurrection. That didn't help either. Um, If it had just been like, you know, Trump lost and then Biden took over and there was no pandemic to distract everybody, we would have been like, you guys remember how crazy you were for four years? They had to call time out. <laughs> Everybody's on time out. And take a moment to acknowledge how insane and histrionic you've all been. Oh, oh yeah. Man. It's like, it becomes a sacrificial crisis. It mm. becomes like, we need a scapegoat. We like we have to sacrifice somebody. We like publicly. <laughs> we have to destroy them. They can't have anything left when we're done, and it has to happen in order for you know this other thing. It's like like very 
a sort of ancient thinking. Mm. Uh, and it's like ultimately rooted in desire, which is the strange part. Like a, a desire, like in, in that case, like not to be sacrificed. <laughs> like, or to, it's like, you know, the idea that the, 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 like it, when you're in a mob, you don't have any responsibility. Like, yeah, it, it feels very primal. It's, it's, it's extremely, yeah. It's, yeah. I'm actually dreading this next, this forthcoming year because, oh man, yeah. It's going to, Everyone's already not doing well. No. I remember I Jesse Kelly, who's, you know, conservative mm-hmm. commentator, he had a tweet after October 7th and he was, this is a guy who's be, uh, been in combat and he was, he said something that just stuck out to me. He said, 99% of you are already not mentally stable enough to be here. And <laughs> like, not, none of you are capable of handling the what's, imagery that what's that, going to happen. Well, yeah. and all the imagery, he's like, some things you, this is, this is not good for your soul. It's not good to yeah. see. And it's certainly going to destabilize you even more psychologically. And, and he was right. Seeing that now. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're headed into 2024, which is, it's I it's it's like the most unstable election I've ever like it's like I constantly think like is this going to happen? <laughs> like, is this going to start? Are they going to start doing the election like like is Biden actually going to is he what is going on? Like, yeah, never Biden, had Trump, like we're, everyone's oh, yeah. going to line up behind these 80-year-olds again and we're going to have to like get behind these people somehow and be yeah, I, I don't know. Although we do have Gavin kind of just running on the side. Shadow uh, running. Shadow running. Just waiting in the wings like a good little sociopath. American Trudeau. He is hilarious. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's ready. Cleaned man. up San Fran. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, that was great. That's great. Yeah. See all, all the, the CCP the flags. <laughs> At least DeSantis has the balls to come out and run, but they can't do that. And the, the Democrats can't be like, oh, yeah. we don't trust you, Biden. So let's let Gavin take a shot. Ah, failing upwards. Oh, gosh. It's going to be. I'm worried about everyone's mental health, including my own, but maybe it'll be good for Jaren. <laughs> yeah. Right I mean, it'll me. be good for all of us really. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's yeah. I mean, we joke it's, about that on dumpster fire a lot. What's bad for America is good for dumpster fire, but that's not good either. <laughs> These are not good incentives for our country. Yeah. Not at all. Reverse incentives. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. It's, I don't know who knows what's going to happen, man, but it's like, no one. No, it's, I mean, We'll be fine. Um, and I, that that goes back to like the idea of like newness through children and marriage. Like they, w- when I see them, it's like, as long as my kids are fine, I'm, everything's fine. Totally. And I will say that in that respect, it, it hasn't changed my politics, but it has made me, again, I have to care about the future. We were joking about this the other day. We're like, oh, we thought it was just going to be us and the dog and like, see ya, Earth. And now we're like, ah, we need to care about what's left (laughs) behind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I thought I could just... Like your personal, your health, like all of that comes, becomes very... Oh, yeah, definitely. Every time I get on a plane now, I understand why my mom used to get such anxiety if she flew alone because there are five of us. But when, especially when they're littles 
and they're so dependent. They're just, it, you're like, oh man, I can't. Even when I drive, when I'm driving, it's very, it's definitely like a. I was thinking about this when I was first pregnant, and I was suddenly driving like a grandma because I had this little being inside of me that I w- was so protective of, and I was laughing at just the absolute lack of respect for my own life that I had. You know, I'm like, I should value my own life enough to drive safely, but no, I don't. But suddenly I have this little being and it's like, just um, now, now my life means more. That's what's so funny about like Plato talks about how like family is a a hindrance to the state Um, because like you we will do irrational things at, out of love and like a devotion that transcends our understanding. It's, it's like the love that we have for our daughters is like inis- inescapable. Mm. Like there's, there's no, there's nothing that, yeah. like I, I, I'll never have an allegiance to anything but them. I love that. And I, yeah, and I'm, I'm okay with that. This, I think there's a conversation like this going around on Twitter, of course, that was, you know, would you destroy a planet of 8 million sentient human-like people if it would save, you know, your wife and daughter and like the people closest to you? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I would kill them. <laughs> yeah. <million people." laughs> like, this isn't even an issue, but, but yeah. Plato, it's like, wouldn't have a problem with this. This is like, a, you know, there's a, there's an ethical consideration and things to take into account. And I'm like, no, this is not, this is, I'm, I'm genociding an entire planet to save my family and my daughter and the, the people close to me. This should not be, this doesn't seem complicated to me. Well, yeah, it yeah. is interesting how that idea like family is kind of anti-utopian in in that respect. Yeah. yeah, it's well, and it's like there's a part of me that resents. Well, I I resent that like utilitarian, like uh, save this person or like kill this many. So it's like anytime I'm presented with that, I'm like, well, f- this. I'm going to push the button just because you're being an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like the trolley problem. Let's just debate the trolley problem. Yeah, it's but, like Jaron would kill anyone who trolley. left poop on the sidewalk and didn't clean up their own dog's poop. I if, he, always, if, he was if a, I was dictator, yeah, it'd be, it'd be harsh times. <laughs> you don't clean up your dog's poop. That's you get once because sometimes you can forget a bag. I oh, get yeah. that, <laughs> but if it happens again, that's it. If it's like something not on the sidewalk, though, off to the gulag. (laughs) (laughs) Sidewalk is like everybody sees that happen. Like if it if if your dog's duking in the grass, it's like okay, that's natural. I still want you to pick it up. I want. Oh, is this like a real thing, you guys? Yeah, Yeah, Ah. for sure. Yeah, no, I don't know why that. Here's the theme of your next uh, episode. I know, we're going to talk. Why why is it so upsetting to me? What? (laughs) People not picking up their dog food. He he would if he was, this is not even a hard problem for him. He would, he would would put them all in the gulag. Yeah. (laughs) It's all just emotional reasoning and lawmaking. No. I have. I loved it. I love Prague. Uh, It's great. Like, Covered in dog, 
Mm-hmm. That's that was my memory of just like I didn't realize it could like like is there nobody cleaning? Like not even people who are like watching their dogs, but like some service. It's just oh, like part of. The I don't bar. remember that about Prague. So this is my my American upbringing that our streets and lawns should be poop free. I think it's just courteous. I think it's your. It's I think your, that's what it is. I, I think there's. I'm definitely. I'm. I'm into. I like manners and being polite, and it feels impolite to leave dogs on somebody else's lawn. No, I like that. It's good. It's like a. It's deontological. There's a right and there's a wrong. Like, no. I think we could all like use more of that. Instead yeah. of like, yeah, you know, sometimes it's okay for like the dog to shit everywhere. <laughs> yeah, we can debate the merit, and I'm comfortable doing the, some of that stuff. But at the end of the day, there's, you know, we are a nation of laws. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> you guys are doing awesome. I really, really enjoy what you're doing. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Thanks it's, for having us. Yeah, it's been fun. A ton. You guys are like spreading a ton of hope. Uh, that last episode about optimism was was great. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, big fan, and uh, keep up being awesome, man. <laughs> I appreciate. Yeah, it. Yeah, you can find um, for anyone listening. You can find Factory Settings anywhere you get your podcasts. Although now what we're doing is putting them behind a paywall after two weeks. So they're open to everyone for two weeks. And then if you want the entire body of work, it's at our Substack at bridgetfetacy.substack.com. So just because of the nature of Jaren's work, we've decided to, you know, put that stuff. So it's just not floating around out there. And you, they run Every two weeks, right? Every two weeks right now. Yep. On and t- then we Tuesdays. might every uh, Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesdays yep. every two weeks. And we we're playing. Well, he's getting busy, much busier. So we're playing with the idea of maybe doing a monthly one. But we actually like might lean into Jaren's desire to do more research and stuff like that. Because the idea was always to start with our own factory settings and then interview people about theirs, start having guests, start researching topics and, and actually putting a little more work into it, which we'll, we'll be able to do if we, if we do one a month, I think. So it might change and evolve, but... That's um, awesome, man. It's not going anywhere, I don't think. Awesome. Well, keep, keep going, man. Thank, Thank, you. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you guys next time. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted this week by me, Kevin Ryan, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. This show is edited by the phenomenally awesome Brett Stewart. Uh, you can reach us by email at theyoungamerican at gmail.com, on Twitter at px3tweets, and mine is at the underscore Kevin underscore Ryan. You can catch the podcast on px3podcast.com. You can support us with a one-time donation on PayPal at paypal.me slash payjury. On Venmo at justin-young-20. On Cash App at dollar sign px3cash. Anything physical 
Send anything physical to P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. The $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. The $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic $10 tier. Ye old pinball shop. John. DP Horbongo. Sam. John. Edwin. Kathy Mack. And Vote Gloria. Young for a king of the new world order, Brian, Edison, Jeremy, a dog named Checkers, Sarah, Jeannie, Matthew, Dr. G, Neil, his nerdiness, Charles, Darren, Idris, Arslanian, Berkeley, Stephen, Nomadic, Taryn, Molly's delightful demeanor, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Dustin, Brad, D. Laser, Nick Wood, Just Another Pilot, Middle-Aged Mike, Utah, Jimmy Montana, The Jen, D. Really, Chopper, Andrew, Adam L., and Gloria Young. Until next time, a reminder. Some shows talk about politics. Other shows talk about politics. And still more discuss politics. But it is only this show that dares to discuss all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.